Welcome to the Natural History Cupboard. Come on in. And welcome back to the Natural History Cupboard podcast, the place where the weird and wonderful parts of the natural world come together. I'm your host, Gareth, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Aaron. Aaron, say hi. Hi, Mega Van and Melin. Hello there. One, I, I, one of these I, one of these days I will actually get that right as to how to respond. But uh, <laughs> Can hi. I just congratulate you, Gareth, on... This is in three weeks. This is the first time you nailed the intro first time. <laughs> yeah, a little bit sort of uh, behind the scenes there. I usually seem to forget how to say something that I've said every week for the last three years. So <laughs> apparently it can take that quick amount of time for my brain to just melt, which is not exactly news. But uh, how has your week been? What have you been up to? Um, My week has been pretty good especially as it's a bank holiday that means three and a half days off now um yeah what else uh, i tell you what has made me really happy this week and this happened late in the week so we've just been like kind of keeping on top of housework and stuff so not really got a chance to go outside much uh however yesterday we were leaving the house uh, i can't remember why but you can't remember was, whether you were in or out I, of the house yeah no we were leaving the house we were in the car <laughs> about just just pulling out of the little cul-de-sac when i noticed that the little birds are back building their nest in the um in the uh in in the how the eaves of the house again which is fantastic because they were disturbed last year and i was really upset and worried that they weren't going to come back but it seems like they are back or at least one of them is back kind of experimenting with it so hopefully hopefully we'll uh get some birds back this year Hmm, that's good that's good yeah Right, well, that sounds like you've had a, a good good uh good week for for wildlife. Um yeah. we went I've down to not... the beach today and we oh, were, good. we were like, looking for mini You actually beasts. made it you actually made it to the beach. Yeah, yeah. We we were looking for mini we, we built ourselves a little kind of sandcastle um and a moat and stuff and then started looking for mini beasts. It was really cool. Ah. I was gonna say this t- you know with it being a bank holiday, this is usually the time to not go anywhere near the beach because it's flooded with that interesting migratory species, the grockle, mm. uh, which uh, I definitely did experience on, on Friday evening, uh, being caught in the traffic by everyone deciding, let's go to Devon for the weekend and uh, blocking the roads up, which was fun. Oh yeah. Anyway, uh, well... I've had a, a rather interesting sort of occurrence in the week, shall we say, Aaron? Yeah. Yes. Um, midway through one of my lessons where I was teaching students about um, exotics, which is very coincidental in the sense that it was that one, uh, one of the students comes in who I'd sent off to go and get bramble to feed the stick insects, comes back and goes, uh, we need you to come outside. Okay, Why? We found a tortoise. Okay. And uh, part of me was like, yeah, yeah. Okay. Right. Let's go outside. We're, we're going to find a rock. I know we are. Or a statue <laughs> of a tortoise that someone's lobbed in a hedge. And lo and behold, there it was. There was a small Herman's tortoise pulled out of the hedge. So my first thought is, okay, let's go and just double count all the tortoises. So they yeah. not escaped yeah. or something. They were all there. Now, after three or four recounts, just to keep my mind from going, well, this is not normal. 
uh, it was definitely a, a tortoise and it was definitely one that had um, wandered in from somewhere. So it wouldn't be the first time that I've come across tortoises that people have dumped. Um, and this was a, a tortoise that was in relatively good condition as well. Oh, but okay. um, so there's a bit of a mystery. But thankfully, it's got a new caring owner. Um, we went and looked around to see if anyone had been missing a tortoise within the local area because they are good at escaping. Um, and most people don't tend to give them anywhere near enough credit for, you know, preventing their escapes. But uh, yeah, no, he was, he was, he's gone off to a new home. He's perfectly healthy. Good. And um, so ends one of the weirdest things I think I've ever had pulled out of a hedge by someone. Hmm. So uh, apart from that, I was out in the garden this afternoon, managed to get some different plants in. My, um, I've now got blackberries, raspberries and, and gooseberries uh, all planted out. My uh, cockroach tanks are thriving. We've got loads of little baby cockroaches in there. Uh, and my stick insects are all starting to grow up as well. So everything's starting to come alive, just like you were saying. It's everything's starting to kick into gear. It's that best time of the year for uh, for seeing stuff. It's, it's just that, you know, life comes back to things. Yeah, it's good. Isn't yeah. It? So to quote uh, Ian Malcolm, uh, life finds a way, I guess. Um, in fact, mm. let's... Let's find a way to uh, shoe in, uh, shoehorn in the news, shall we? Let's do it. Cool. It's the news. Right. Well, we're into this week's news. Aaron, what do we got in the newsreel? Yeah, so as regular cupboard dwellers will know, here in the Natural History Cupboard, we like to keep you updated on the big news coming out of the weird and wonderful world of natural sciences. But we don't always have time to get through them, so let's jump into the Natural History Cupboard newsreel and bring you all up to speed. So first up, red squirrels have been photographed eating frog spawn up a tree. I'm assuming the frog spawn has been taken up the tree. Uh, but BBC reports on their... Uh, sorry, BBC reports on their wildlife photographer... Dave Bird has spotted the animal tucking into the odd meal that has intrigued conservationists. The feast occurred in Strathray in Loch Lomond uh, and the Trossachs National Park. Uh, and the current belief is that the omnivore might have either caught a frog and the spawn were inside or that the bird had done similar and been chased off its catch. Sort of like a jam-filled donut. Froggy, <laughs> meaty, jam-filled, egg-filled donut. Lovely. Next, the BBC brings us news that the British Isles rainforest restoration is to begin on the Isle of Man and in Wales. The Wildlife Trust said that the Isle of Man's Craigiecoin and Bryn Iffen near Wales's Chling Peninsula are to be the first two sites of their Atlantic rainforest recovery program, which hopes to restore the rainforest ecosystems that now cover less than 1% of the British Isles. Hmm. And from fizz.org online, mushrooms and their post-rain electrical uh, conversations. Researchers <laughs> have been studying the electrical signals transferred between mushrooms across trees as part of the mycelial network for some time. But evidence is often sparse as labs struggle to perfectly, uh, perfectly simulate events in the wild. But now a team has managed to attach electrodes to a cluster of six lacrial bicolor mushrooms and we're able to reveal that the electrical signals actually increase after rainfall. 
I mean, kind of makes sense, doesn't it? You know, water and mm-hmm. electricity. Um, very Avatar, though. Well, uh, no, I think you'll find Avatar was Avatar based was inspired on by that, but real things. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, and Monga Bay reports on Indianapolis Zoo offering a one million dollar grant uh, for plan to save a threatened species. The zoo is offering the reward to an organization that can create a plan that will save a species listed as threatened on the IUCN red list. Plans will be judged by a group of animal conservation experts from around the world, and the winner will have five years to get things started and demonstrate some progress. Mm, should we go and do that then? We should, yeah. We're an organization, right? Yeah, I mean, we're we're kind of organized. <laughs> Occasionally. <laughs> Uh, and next up, uh, Fizz.org reveals that researchers uh, get the drop on a new frog species. Five new tree frog species from Papua New Guinea have been described by researchers in Australia, one of which camouflages itself as bird poo. I like mm. it. The uh, five new species are named Latoria darinensis, Latoria gracis, uh, Latoria hemotagaster, and Latoria liasis, and Latoria napsel. Uh, the latter is the aforementioned bird poo murk. Uh, if you're interested in looking that one up, which mm. I am totally going to go look that one up in a minute. And lastly, from uh, from Live Science, scientists d- discover never before seen brainwave after reading octopuses' minds. Uh, it seems like every day octopuses reveal some part of their lives that is in some way unique, different, or incredible. And today is no different. Uh, according to a groundbreaking new study, researchers have captured the first ever brain recordings of freely moving octopuses, and they demonstrate a brainwave that has never been observed in any other animal previously studied. And that will do it for this week's Natural History Covered Newsreel. Guys, if you have a news story that you want us to cover, send it in to us and you might see your chosen topic or news article covered here or in our main topics. And with that said, let's dive on into those main topics. Right, well, I've uh, I've got a fantastic news article coming to us from uh, Biaza's website, from their news bit. Uh, for anyone who's not aware, Biaza is the British and Irish Association of Zoos and Aquariums, and this one is simply entitled Extinct Snails Return to the Wild. And this has been a very on uh, long, ongoing process that is really, really showing results. So zookeepers have returned more than 5,000 extinct in the wild, critically endangered tropical snails bred at conservation zoos across the world to their French Polynesian island homes. Almost 30 years after they were wiped out by humans and introduced invasive species. So we are talking about Partula snails and thousands of which uh, were reared at London, Whipsnade and the Royal Zoological Society of Scotland, Edinburgh Zoo, uh, as well mm. as St. Louis Zoo as well. Aaron, you've, uh, you've, you've worked at one of those institutions. Um, anything to do with them? I had absolutely nothing to do with them, but I will say that it, I loved working there. Did you did you get to see any of them up close? No, I did not. Ugh. No. You you large mammal keepers, you're all the same. <laughs> <laughs> um, so some of these snails were <laughs> carefully flown over fifteen thousand kilometers to the islands of Moray and Tahiti uh, earlier this month for the largest reintroduction in history. Uh, ZSL's curator of invertebrates, Paul Pierce Kelly, who coordinates the collaborative uh, Partula Conservation Program, said, despite their small size, and these are tiny snails, some of them, these are of great cultural and ecological significance. 
Mm. Uh, they're Darwin's finches of the snail world, essentially. They've been uh, researched for more than a century, and due to their isolated habitat, provi- uh, providing the perfect conditions to study evolution. This year's conservation efforts saw eight species and uh, subspecies reintroduced, which are classified as extinct in the wild, critically endangered, or nice. vulnerable. So they are they are reversing extinction in some of these places. Before making the two-day journey to the islands, uh, the nocturnal snails, which measure one to two centimeters in length, were individually marked with a dot of red UV reflective paint, meaning that they'll glow under UV torchlight to help conservationists monitor their population at night when they are most active, making it easy for yourself. That's the way to do it. Mm. Uh, Parchula snails are also known as Polynesian tree snails, uh, and they basically eat decaying plant tissue and fungi, so play an important role and maintaining forest health. Returning them back into the wild enables them to start restoring the ecological balance to these islands, uh, and now on their way back, and from the brink of extinction, thanks to the dedicated work of conservation zoos uh, and the French Polynesian government. Uh, So the snails were under imminent extinction threat in the 1980s and the early 1990s after the invasive predatory rosy wolf snail, which, even though it's a very destructive species of snail, it's actually a very, very pretty snail, which was uh, introduced onto the islands to get rid of the previously introduced alien species, the African giant land snail. Are you seeing a theme here, Aaron, of uh, us introducing one uh, invasive species to get rid of another and it not Mm. working? Oh, yeah. Unfortunately, uh, and this is the the way these things go, unfortunately, the rosy wolf snail targeted the endemic snails uh, instead of the, um, the much larger Uh, African giant land snails. So across the region, many species were lost or left close to extinction shortly after these predators arrival on the the areas. The last few surviving individuals of several Parchula snails were rescued in the early 90s by uh, London and Edinburgh zoos uh, in order to begin the International Conservation Breeding Program, a collaboration between 15 zoos which care for 15 species and subspecies, the majority of which have an extinct in the wild red list conservation status. Combined with the others already being uh, studied at universities around the world, uh, it was the individuals that formed the source group to basically restart the population to these islands eventually. Paul added that after decades of work caring for these uh, species uh, in zoos and working with the, the, uh, the local government in uh, the islands, to prepare for the return, we began releasing the Parchula snails back into the wild nine years ago. Since then, we've reintroduced over 21,000 Parchula snails to the island, including 11 uh, species that are extinct in the wild, uh, and as well as subspecies uh, in that mix as well. This mm-hmm. year's was the largest reintroduction so far, and thanks to the incredible work of our international team efforts with collaborate- collaborators, including Mollusk specialist Dr. Justin Gerlach of Peterhouse University, Cambridge. The Parchula snail reintroduction has, has actually been made possible due to funding from supporters, including the Players of the People's Postcode Lottery, which is something I didn't know that that was uh, going towards, oh, yeah. who've enabled ZSL to continue their vital work and bring species back from the brink of extinction. I was actually lucky enough to be at one of those conferences a couple of years back uh, where they were talking about the reintroduction of some of these different snails and the areas of where these snails live. Some of them are so tiny. It's unbelievable. 
one of these ones that was talked about was essentially found under a sheet of tin in the back of someone's garden. And that right. was the entire population. What? Something like 20 individuals just found under the sheet of tin that lived in the uh, the back of someone's garden. So what they did was they, they basically took those animals out of the wild and took them back to the UK, bred them up where turns out their numbers are exceedingly easy to bring up if they, uh, they don't have any predation or any pressures. And yeah. I think it was, yeah, a couple of years later, they were in, able to reintroduce them in such numbers back into this area that they did actually put some back in this guy's, you know, where the original site was and yeah. around that area of this island. And, and that whole population is so well represented now that, um, they're not considered uh, endangered anymore. So it's it's a mm -hmm. real, you know, it's a real success story for zoos. Obviously, snails don't tend to get anywhere near as much press as, say, rhinos or elephants or whatever, but these are the animals that are the bioengineers of uh, their habitats, and without them, yeah, you know, these habitats just fall apart. So yeah, it's it's really good to see. And whenever people go to zoos, and complain that they go through a bug house saying they complain that, oh, that snail's boring. That snail's probably 10 times more endangered than any other animal in that entire park. And and yet the conservation uh, that can be done with that animal pretty much outstrips most of the other conservation that can be done with some of those larger creatures. You know, obviously, for the simple reason that it's a lot easier to get a whole tank's worth of snails shipped out to an island yeah. in another part of the world than it is to get 200 tigers shipped out to an area uh, and reintroduced. You know, we should be we should be singing the praises of things like that far more. But I can guarantee you that will be probably one of only a few news sources that will actually carry that. And it's obviously because Biaza is the governing body for those zoos that it is trying to sing the praises of those zoos. But um, yeah, good on them. And if you go to any of those zoos, go and check out their bug collections because they're absolutely stunning, all of those ones, and they do amazing work. Yeah. Right. Aaron, what are you got? Collections. Sorry? Well, I said just saying that they're great collections. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, my news uh, comes to us from, again, unfortunately, from from BBC News. But it's the news that MSPs are to discuss proposals for the return of the links to Scotland. So members of Scottish Parliament are to discuss proposals for the reintroduction of links. The cats were driven to extinction around 500 to 1,000 years ago, but are actually native and should be present in British fauna. Uh, we've previously spoken of the benefits to our environment of returning predators like the links to its former domain on the British Isles. But our last mention of the progress of such a movement was not particularly inspiring. If you remember, it was when Therese Coffer stuck her incredibly uneducated nose into a subject that she was clearly morbidly ignorant of. You don't and, uh, have to have knowledge to be an MP. You just have to no. be an MP. And then the knowledge is, is given to you with the job title. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, well... Don't waste your time accruing knowledge to be an MP. My God, just uh, just have opinions and assert those opinions as fact. Be a popularist. And boom, it's done. Yeah. Mm. Well, it was when she riled up the ever-sensitive National Farmers Union with a baseless speech that was intended to shut down conversations instead of invite them. As with Brexit, however, 
the Scots seem to have their heads screwed on a little better uh, when it comes to Link's reintroduction. With right. Scottish Greens MP Ariane Burgess uh, for the Highland and Islands leading the conversations. So the event will be organised by uh, Scotland, the big picture, Trees for Life and the Lifescape project. And it will be attended by members of the Scottish Parliament, senior advisors and rural groups. Uh, despite the NFU Scotland's outrage to this, the move to reintroduce links to the Highlands is supported by scientific research and the motion to take such a project seriously has received keen cross-party support, unlike here in, in England. Now, whilst uh, the pest control role of the wild links and the ecotourism and economical benefits of links are all pretty clear, public opinion is uh, is divided on the uh, on the subject to an extent and parties looking to see this project be successful should be open to conversing with 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 these people in, who are in opposition in order to smooth over any concerns and educate them on the role and impact of the species so uh yeah relatively short article but i'm happy that at least one part of britain is considering doing the right thing um and and it is very good news indeed uh hopefully it goes ahead but just the fact that they're willing to talk about this and the fact that the people willing to talk about this come from different parties is a incredibly good thing yeah well it is really good um and and to be honest like I say i think links is is a achievable goal i don't think we'll ever see wolves but i think links is an achievable one certainly up in scotland the space for it is very much there do you know what i I disagree with you to an extent. I, f I think, no, I agree with you that Lynx is the most achievable short term. Mm. I disagree with the notion that wolves will never be here. I think no, I think wolves will eventually, probably not in our lifetime, but I do think wolves are on, on their way back. The one that I don't think will come back, uh, and it's because it's potentially even more misunderstood than the wolves, which is the one I want, a really trait. A really, really interesting trait to have being more misunderstood than wolves, but it's it's theirs. Yeah, I, I really don't think I I really think that the British bears are are gone and they're never coming back. Unfortunately, when really they're they're not really that dangerous at all. But I think it's the idea of such a huge, uh, massive carnivore uh, that that is it just freak people. If you're freaked out by lynx and wolves, then the well, people get no freaked hope. out by mice, to be honest. So, uh, yeah, this is true. Yeah, <laughs> very good news. Um, should we move on from uh, from our news now and and take a trip uh, to your creature feature, which I believe is an extinct one, which is one that you've not done for a while. Yeah, yeah, I'm doing an extinct one. So let's get to it. It's the creature feature. Right. Well, we're into this week's creature feature, Aaron. What are we looking at? Where are we going? Who are we meeting? Tell us all about it. Uh, well, this episode, whilst there will be some speculative observations, I would like to whisk you off to Liaoning, China, uh, the early Cretaceous, about 125 to 120 million years ago, to a habitat that would eventually form the Jufotang Formation. I hope I've pronounced all that correctly. <laughs> The area is a temperate forested environment dominated by lakes and wetlands that break up the land. The environment is a popular haunt for pterosaurs and feathered dinosaurs experimenting with flight systems. 
even their most successful line. The birds are well represented here in their more primitive forms. But as the sun goes down and the dark of night looms, we're here for an incredibly small but mightily important species. Uh, I'm talking, of course, of Microraptor, which is Greek for small thief, if you were wondering. Uh, measuring just shy of 80 centimetres and weighing roughly one and a half kilograms, this creature is one of the smallest known non-avian dinosaurs to have traversed the forests of the world. And it may well have been one of the most important in regards to how we understand the dinosaurs today. Its importance stems from features of their fossils that give these wonderful little animals a pretty incredible appearance. The fossils actually have feathers present in them. Gareth, you must have seen uh, the images of, of these wonderful fossils with these uh, feather imprints in, in them. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not just uh, Microraptor. It's everything from Confucianus to Sinithoornis. Uh, Archaeopteryx. Yeah, Archaeopteryx. Uh, more and more are getting discovered all the time. Um, in, oh, it's, sorry, I'm not going to waste time on it, but the name escapes me. But there's been a few recent discoveries as well of of some pretty large uh, dromaeosaurids and stuff with with feathers. Um, but yeah, the fossils are very much present on these fossils. Now it must be said that due to the decaying process, not all feathers are visible to our eyes unaided. They're often hidden under like decayed soft tissues and, and such. Uh, but we now know that they had a lovely thick coat of the structures, helping to keep these little critters warm. They also had long plumes flowing from their head, like peacocks and some birds of prey do today. today. Uh, and they had an arrangement of feathers forming a diamond-shaped fan at the end of the tail, potentially acting as a rudder to help them steer and balance as the animal kind of moves. But probably the most interesting feature of these dinosaurs' feathers are their relationship with the animal's limbs. Uh, they had aerodynamic feathers uh, on both sets of limbs. So we're talking about a four-winged dinosaur. Uh they very much look like my baggy jeans from the 90s. Um, <laughs> in fact, the feathers of the arms and hands would look no different to our eyes than those of the modern birds that we have around today. And the ones on their legs were similarly long and rigid. These feathers in particular were anchored deep within the animal's body, close to, if not into, the microraptor's bones, which is a trait that gives bird feathers the strength that they need to withstand the stresses of, of true flight. So, Gareth, I'm going to give you a brief description of mm -hmm, different mm -hmm. locomotion options. I want you to, without cheating, so no looking up web pages or books, I want you yep. to tell me which one you think Microraptors used. Okay? So we've got yep. gliding. And as like by gliding, I refer to the act of creating enough lift from your wings that you can sustain a prolonged and controlled decline in altitude, even having control over your direction and therefore destination. The second okay. option is parachuting, by which I mean having the ability to drop from height in a controlled descent that lacks the ability to, to, to sustain altitude or direction for any amount of time, but kind of gives you a, a, a soft landing uh, from height. And then flight. And by this, I mean, obviously, being able to not just sustain altitude, but maintain at least a steady speed and make direction and altitudinal change as desired and self-power your locomotion through the air. 
So uh, I'll let you take your shot. Um, well, I my personal thought would be between gliding and parachuting. However, knowing that these were not particularly great at flight, and I would have to go for parachuting in that they jump, sort of glide or fall toward uh, another tree and then scamper up and repeat the process. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Uh, it may come as a surprise to to people listening. Uh, Gareth, I'm pretty sure you'll be able to back me up on this, but each of these abilities, each of these different forms of locomotion, they actually require different anatomical structures. So a wing is not a wing is not a wing. Um, and uh, and obviously skeletal structures differ as well um, because basically flight, gliding and parachuting, all they all kind of present different challenges to an animal's body and puts their bodies under different stresses. So to that end, we're going to have a look at the anatomy of Microraptor to see if we can eliminate or perhaps reveal the answer to the question I just asked Gareth. So firstly, we're going to tackle gliding. Now, it certainly might surprise a lot of people and will surprise Gareth, but gliding is actually a non-starter for this species. Initially, it was the most widely held hypothesis or theory, I should say. Despite researchers hypothesizing that they may have used the standard issue dromaeosaurid sickle-shaped inner toe claw as a climbing pick instead of a hunting tool, there are actually no specialized adaptations present in the skeleton of a microraptor to suggest a life as a tree climber. In fact, well, that's e just irritating. Yeah, uh, even the leg bones themselves have more in common with ground-dwelling birds than any climbing species, like tree-creeping species. So gliding is potentially again we're kind of inferring what we can from the fossils of long dead animals so this is going on our most current and best known information but it looks like gliding is it's out the window um secondly parachuting parachuting was a huge no-no for a microraptor which again will come as a surprise to many because these is guys this, has this changed quite a bit because it used to be the the the, yeah. the information that i was going on and it obviously shows i haven't looked at microraptor for a very long time well i i was quite shocked when i when i did this creature feature because i was like yeah i'm gonna do this one he glides and he parachutes and stuff but apparently i was very wrong and so are you <laughs> well yeah i'm i'm out of date they're not I'm, built uh, for dropping I'm extinct they are at all not not built for for dropping it's um a huge danger to them tests done in a 2007 study showed that the combined wing surface was far too narrow to safely complete a parachute from significant height to the ground without sustaining potentially life-threatening injury hmm. and by significant height we're talking any height worth noting at all like not just like hopping off of a rock and i mean like any kind of anything that would require the animal's body to parachute would it would not uh it would not have done it so in other words it wouldn't so much parachute jump as it would basically plunge potentially into oblivion <laughs> so that leaves flying right yes and no it's Probably not the kind of flying that you're going to see from modern birds. 
Whilst it's long been held that Microraptor was a glider unable to achieve true flight, most scientists today agreed that the animal was a flyer of sorts. Again, the clues are in the anatomy, obviously. A fused sternum, asymmetrical feathers, and a specialized shoulder girdle all speak to the self-powered flight uh, ability of these animals. Though it is likely a very primitive form of flight, with the animal being unable to achieve the full figure of eight stroke of a bird flapping today. Did you you you're aware that when a bird flaps, yeah. it's a figure of eight? Yeah, cool. Well, I mean, I, I teach avian anatomy, so I, uh... I would hope so. Yeah. <laughs> also, um, they wouldn't have had, uh, they may have had a fused sternum, but they wouldn't have had a keel, which mm-hmm. is a, an adaptation to fully powered flight. It's that anchor yeah. point. For, for muscles to attach to yeah uh and speaking of part of the reason for this is that the shoulder socket is a little too low and too far back to allow the dinosaur to reach perfectly vertical uh, but the shoulder girdle itself was high enough to allow them to almost get there so it's like it's like not quite having the ability but making it work anyway in addition, these wings were large enough to allow for a powerful launch that gave them the necessary boost to get into a flight motion. So unlike other birds that can kind of get lift from stand-in, these guys would have to jump to get there. But the ability to fly raises an interesting notion. The dromaeosaurs really thrived in the Cretaceous, and much like the cats of today, their success saw their body plan repeated throughout the family, only very notably in size, with only kind of smaller odder adaptions here and there so if microraptor could fly uh as the studies seem to suggest that would make later dromaeosaurs like deinonychus secondarily flightless meaning these species evolved flightless from flight able ancestor ancestral lines uh nonetheless theories on how they achieve flight and how they held their four winged limbs during the activity remains a healthily contested topic uh, now, it's also interesting, or it's worth noting, I should say, that um, a lot of studies talk about them being dromaeosaurids, but even that is not as clear-cut as as we kind of would assume it is. Uh, there's still an argument to be made that they might be more towards the trudontid uh, line. Uh, now, when I mentioned these more specialized feather adornments, I suggested that they were only the second most interesting aspect of the fossilized remains. Uh, So Gareth, another question for you. What do you think is the most interesting and possibly the most important feature of these feathers? Well, I might have a bit of an inside track on it in that uh, it was the coloring left over in the feathers. Yes. In a microscopic... Oh, what are they called? Uh, chromatis, chromatophores? Oh, you're so close, so close. It is a, it is an organelle, uh, in the cell. Um, yeah, and yeah, you're you're right. It's the color. Um, now I'm sure people are asking themselves, how can you tell the color of an extinct animal, uh, from a bunch of dirty fossils? And I am glad you guys are asking because it, Gareth was incredibly close, but it's melanosomes. Melanosomes. That's yeah. A, no, it's something to do with color melanosome coming from the the pigment of melanin. So yeah, exactly. So a melanosome, you you would have heard us talk about them before when we used to do our uh, word of the week segment, and these are found in the cells of an animal, and they basically act as the site for the creation, storage, and transport of melanin, uh, which is a pigment that absorbs light. They are 
not just responsible for the color of the animal uh, also they're responsible for sun protection so a really really uh, kind of great pigment to uh, to have now what this means for our microraptor friends is that by understanding the function of melanosomes and how they appear in modern animals including extant modern dinosaurs uh, like our birds uh, we can infer what color an extinct prehistoric dinosaur might have been by analyzing the fossilized pigment cells and comparing them to modern birds, researchers were able to see that they were shaped and arranged in a manner that is consistent with black. Uh, they were also able to see that the melanosomes themselves were stacked, which is a phenomenon seen in starlings. Uh, and this would have provided the black coat with a glossy iridescent sheen. Now, researchers don't yet know the function of this iridescence, but they propose that it could have been for displaying communication. Uh, and they suggested that they'd perhaps require some form of light for the social habits, which is why I speculated that we would be taking this search kind of around dusk because black in a forest at night is a damn good option in terms of natural camouflage. But if you're hanging around at night and you're a nocturnal creature, then would that not render the uh, evolution of iridescence a little bit obsolete? So uh, I think that they were probably crepuscular to an extent, probably socializing during the day and uh, hunting at night uh, whilst needing the coverage of darkness to go about their carnivorous endeavors. Um, and that latter assertion is supported by the size of the sclerotic ring of the microraptor's eye, which is consistent with nighttime hunting. And yes, this little 80 centimeter dinosaur was in all likelihood a hunter. During the further fossil prep work undertaken on the type fossil for microraptor Jaunus, Hopefully I've pronounced that correctly. Uh, researchers revealed preserved gut contents. The study was published just last year and details the remains of a mammal, an incredibly special discovery, as there is only one other example of a theropod having undeniably eaten a mammal. It was a compsognathid. Uh, oh, I can't remember the name of it. Um, but yeah, there you go. Now, the consumed remains consist mostly of a complete and articulated right foot and some some other longer bones and some fragmented pieces to boot and whilst the remains can't tell us whether the victim was hunted or scavenged by the consumer they can kind of help us narrow down the food choices and they're kind of consistent with animals like eomaya and um cynodelphes which are two mammalia morphs except that the foot doesn't exactly match either of these animals which tells us two things firstly the the animal was not an arboreal species like the uh, these other two close relatives I mentioned. And secondly, and possibly more intriguingly, it may be the only known fossil of an as-yet-undescribed species, known only from these fossilised digested remains. Other studies have found evidence of other fossilised meals. One such study revealed a toothed bird within the gut confines of a microraptor gee uh, stomach. And in this case, evidence suggests that the bird had been swallowed whole, which implies it was hunted. The body was positioned in such a way as it would have been eaten head first, a behavior that is seen in today's carnivorous reptiles, including birds. Further studies carried out upon another specimen of the gee species of Microraptor found fish remains, which disproved the theory that this dinosaur hunted arboreal species only. Um, tree fish. Sorry? Tree fish. Tree fish. Tree climbing yeah. fish. You know, there's tree fish, yeah. <laughs> also, an indrosaur, which is a type of scleroglossin lizard, 
has been found in the uh, gut, gut contents of uh, fossilized microraptors. And again, the victim went in head first, though this time there doesn't appear to be any damage suggestive of the uh, digestive process. So it looks like the microraptor itself met an unfortunate end shortly after its meal. It's likely, uh, ultimately, that microraptors as a species were opportunistic generalist feeders who hunted and scavenged where game was common and easier to take. Um, now, I've kind of decided to stop my uh, creature feature there because I was saying to Gareth before we recorded, this has been one of the most difficult um, creature features to do because not because there's no information out there, but because there is far too much in information out there uh, that it's hard to kind of prune down what what to talk about. So I think it's going to be one of those that I might return to in the future with uh, with another side to their uh, to their life story. Hmm. Interesting. Well, before we disappear from this one, Aaron, there's something I watched the other day that I thought was absolutely fascinating. When you think about it, it actually makes quite a bit of sense. We talk about um, birds mm -hmm. as if that is the most normal version of flight. I think you've but, seen the same thing I've seen. But it, it, talking about Yi Chi and Ambopteryx, Ambopteryx, Epidepsipteryx, yeah. all of these these uh, um, Scansoropterygians that basically uh, that went down the route of having uh, skin wings like bats and pterosaurs and it's all these other animals that did it. Sorry, I was yeah. just going to say, it's important to note that their bodies and their tails were still feathered. It's yeah, just yeah, that yeah. The, the wing membrane itself was, was, was a membrane. skin. It was a membrane, yeah. And yet th they're thought of as the odd ones, um, which mm -hmm. I thought was really good. If we think about it, pretty much every other thing that flies other than a bird has a membranous wing. Mm -hmm. Birds are the only ones that have gone and put feathers and turned it into this aerofoil shape of uh, covering over what is effectively a skin membranous wing underneath anyway, just a much, mm -hmm. much more reduced one, which it was really cool to uh, to sort of look at from a um, what we consider normal is only because uh, birds are the ones that won out out in that sort of evolutionary arms race. So animals like Microraptor were part of that sort of evolutionary arms race for feathers taking over as a form of flight. Yeah, it's very it's it's very strange. I always un until that we watched the same video. I feel yes, um, I think we did. Yeah, yeah, it it changed my mind about it too. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, let's move on from the. Uh, late Cretaceous forests of China to the non-late Cretaceous forests of our mailbag. Let's do it. Bing! You've got mail. Ooh, it's an email. Okay, we're into this week's emails, and we're going to kick things off with our question that we posed the uh, listeners last week. What has been your best mini-beast encounter? And starting them off is Jen Babs, tardigrade hunting with my equine students, they thought I was bonkers. Uh, well, more bonkers than at first, at least, which <laughs> I think is brilliant, um, which has then sparked another. Well, this is another one we've had people replying to each other on here. So it's good. Uh, so Catherine Ames has put uh, Jen Babs. I really want to see a tardigrade. Uh, she has then replied. Uh, they are pretty cute and can usually find them in bits of moss growing between the cracks in the pavement. And then that's come back with Catherine Ames to Jen Babs. I do collect moss 
and asked my husband for a USB microscope uh, for, uh, for one birthday. Amazing, the main reason is to see these amazing things. Just need to set it all up. And yeah, she is very correct. You you can find tardigrades pretty much everywhere where there's you know a nice damp bit of moss or a bit of soil with some vegetation on it. Um, and they are... Uh, you know, able to be seen under the microscope. So really hmm. cool. Magic Times has put I Know Aaron's uh, interaction with a mini beast. It's a wasp. Never mind his other encounters. Uh, and mine, depending on what you call a mini beast, I would have to say a chihuahua. <laughs> well, I'm going to say a chihuahua is definitely not a mini beast. Um, they are a beast. Some of them, they can definitely be. <laughs> but uh, they can uh, certainly scare. In fact, I'd be more scared of a, a chihuahua than I would have a wasp. Uh, Shelley Kendall has uh, replied to that one and said, Andrews too. He sat on one as well. Poor wasp. So good to see some sympathy I'm, there. I'm liking that everybody's like talking, like our community are now yeah, not just talking community. to us, but talking to each other. Great. Yeah. In fact, it's so much so that it's come up with most relevant as opposed to all comments. So I've just got to fiddle with that to get all the comments. There we go. Uh, so Catherine Ames has put, meeting this little one in Zanzibar. They sat on my hand for ages and didn't want to leave. Uh, and it's a, a photo of a lovely mantis. I must admit, my only experience with a wild mantis has been it biting me on the hand. Uh, so uh, it's nice to see when they don't want to bite. Uh, Lindsay Kinsella has said, we occasionally get tiny little zebra jumping spiders. They're so much fun. Oh, lovely. Uh, and we'll follow you around. And that's definitely true. Right. Well, this week's question that we pose you is based on Aaron has been talking about in his creature feature where he's talked about the ancient forests of China where Microraptor was hanging out. Is there a forest that you've always wanted to go and see? And where is it? Um, Aaron, which forest do you want to go and see in the world? Or hmm. I have been lucky enough to go to... Obviously, Tamanagara, uh, rainforest, the oldest rainforest on the on the planet. Very nice. Um, I think I I think that's a difficult one. There's so many because yeah. uh, I think my first first thing I was going to say is let's go to the other side, to the other lung of the earth, and go to uh, uh the Amazon. But then also you've got you know you've got forests that cover like the like you know. The redwoods, you've got forests that cover the mountainous regions of America and Canada. I'd love to see that. Mm. Well, I mean, that's that's pretty much where my thought was. There's, there's a few places forest-wise that I'd love to see. The giant redwoods of North America. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's a definite. For two reasons, and I, and I feel that you should probably, you know, agree with me on this one. The Pacific Caesar North is home. No, no, no. Forget, forget <laughs> Caesar. The Pacific Northwest is also home to Endor as well of course yes so um that's one of the draws (laughs) it's it's home to giant redwoods and also tiny teddy bears that want to kill you so that would definitely be uh, one for me one that i have been to that i'd love to go back to seeing is cold climate australian rainforests where it's giant tree ferns and Mm. um like yeah, just cold and damp, but green with like running water. The sort of places in Tasmania and that that the uh, the giant crayfish are hanging out. There's something oh, yeah. primordial about those forests, and they just feel there's there's an atmosphere to them as well. Mm. They just feel amazing. But I'd also really like to see the um the flooded forests 
in well not just the amazon but also in indonesia as well yes where you end up with rivers flooding out huge sections of these forests and 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 just turning them into bizarre underwater landscapes there's also some pretty cool um forests around europe too uh, yeah when i when i um was in when i was in barcelona uh one thing i learned is that that area of spain catalonia is uh 70 percent of it is still covered by um the primary forest oh that's um, really good numbers it's this yeah and it's 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 amazing i uh i went up there a lot in into the forest and stuff uh so i can vouch for that being uh, a very nice environment but yeah there's there's other forests around europe that are lovely there's one that's just come to mind i mean we're, we're basically just naming different forests now we're not giving anyone else any other thoughts but the ones that i've always wanted to go and see is on the other side of america uh from the pacific northwest which would be down in places like alabama and mississippi and that mm-hmm. florida the um oh god what are they called bald cypress trees the the sort of oh yeah everglades style forests they're another primordial yeah. looking plant in those in those sort of flooded forests with the old man's beard hanging down from the branches the swamps and the gators yeah. oh that would be <laughs> that would be awesome to go and see mm. so yeah if you uh, want to let us know dear listeners uh what Natural history forest... covered road trip yep what forest we should go to and go and see in fact we should try and go and see some of the old uh the oldest forests in england because that's down uh on dartmoor uh if i remember yeah. correctly um, the oldest patch of, of forest in the UK, undisturbed, is is down on Dartmoor. It's, it's absolutely tiny, but it's certainly worth us taking a, a, a trip to go and see. Um, and we're also not too far from England's largest tree as well, which is only up in Somerset. So we could go and hmm. see that as well. Double whammy tree day. Uh, but if you uh, want to get in contact with us uh, over uh, what your thoughts are, you can do so by sending it to us on our Facebook page where that will be up throughout the week. We're also available on our Twitter page as well, our Instagram, and you can find us obviously at our email address, which is thenathistorycupboard at gmail.com. Uh, and in fact, one of the emails that we've had come in to us has come in via that exact form of communication. Aaron, what is it and who have we got it from? Right, well, our question comes to us from Jennifer Greenhall, uh, and she says, hello, so catching up on the last couple of episodes and so pleased that you called out the cop for greenwashing. Uh, I was also wondering what you thought of colleges getting zoo licenses. I hadn't really given it much thought. I guess there are advantages and disadvantages. Potentially the animals will get more handling and that may have uh, de- detrimental impact. But then some land-based colleges can really develop the messages of conservation. I really like Sparshalt. Uh, last time I was there, they had a couple of red pandas. To be honest, they were pretty ancient. I think there are quite a few now with licenses. Uh, so I think, Gareth, you're probably in the best position of, of anyone to talk <laughs> about this on, on the team. Fair enough. Um, well, I do work at a college with a zoo license, and it has allowed us to get quite a few different animals. Uh, but it also does mean that we have to work in the same sort of vein as a zoo so that doesn't uh, that that means we can't just easily obtain animals uh by just going down the pet shop or getting something like that we have to do it through this sort of official means that zoos have to 
there's a lot stricter paperwork as well. Uh, and that includes everything from births, deaths, uh, arrivals, departures, all those sort of things have got to be recorded. Um, it means temperatures, UV, water parameters, mm-hmm. uh, fridge temperatures. I'm trying to think of other ones now, but all uh, stock records, um, the amount of stuff in a freezer, all of these different things have to be recorded, which is a really good thing. It means for a couple of reasons, it gets the staff who obviously are the, the, so the, the techs and that that would be working with the animals uh, in the, the right frame of mind to be running uh, an animal collection. Because at the end of the day, whether it's a college or whether it's a zoo or even a pet shop, it's still a collection of animals. So their care should be foremost um, in people's minds. Uh, there is also the thought that if you are teaching students to go into that industry and it's all focused on getting them ready to go into industry, they need to be okay with doing those daily checks, doing those uh, record-taking procedures, being able to take responsibility for things like that because Mm. you paint a false picture for them. They'll go into industry thinking it's all hugging bunnies and things, realize that there is a lot more paperwork than people realize and um, not want to be there, not enjoy it, or you know, all of a sudden start going well, why on earth do i have to do this i don't want to do this you know and it, it it ruins people's sort of career paths i suppose in that sense so it's it's really good from a getting people into industry point of view the downsides to it are obviously that collections can end up getting animals in that they may not necessarily have the enclosure space or um staff to be able to deal with it but there are plenty yeah. of zoos that also uh, go down that path as well, Aaron. And I think, well, you'll be able to certainly agree on that. that Absolutely. Um, just because an animal looks cool doesn't mean it necessarily needs to be in. Uh, and I know certainly speaking from experience of working with the animals that we have where I am, we allow the students to go and interact with these animals. They're not directly picking them up and only certain levels of students are allowed to do certain things with some of these animals um, but there's no direct picking up and hugging things. You know, it's it's not they're not there to be done dealt with like that, but they are doing the day to day husbandry uh, every single day. So that's that's an important part of it. And it gets them really ready for it. And I found that some of these colleges that that do have zoo licenses, they're carrying out the same level of conservation work that we talked about with with, uh, you know, things like Parchula snails um, with other species as much at a higher level, uh, as much at, at the same level that zoos are, and sometimes even higher, because they're able to have a bit more focus on it. I mean, it's mm. it's also somewhere that zookeepers can then end up going into another career. A lot of zookeepers have done exactly that. I, I can think of a good five or six other zookeepers that I know that have gone into this exact same industry to basically use their knowledge to teach people about going into the zoo industry. I mean, that's that's literally why I was brought on the place where I am currently is because of my experience and knowledge of of where I've worked and being able to use that to teach the next generation of people who want to go into zoos. So, yeah, there, there's swings and roundabouts. There's no such thing uh, as a one-size-fits-all answer for this. There are good zoos. There are bad zoos. There are good colleges. There are bad colleges. 
having a zoo license doesn't necessarily make you a, a go from being a bad college to a good college and vice versa. It All it does is it means that you have a zoo license uh, and what you do with that is the important thing. Mm. Well, and thank that, you for that, because that was interesting to, to listen to from my point of view, too. Uh, it's it's yeah. I, I mean, I've, I, I really enjoy working with, you know, the fact that I, I've still got a zoo, you know, that zoo aspect still there. In fact, that's one of the lessons I teach is zoo. It's mm. literally, it's just called zoological theory or zoo, zoo theory or whatever. But um, it's, it's the sort of, yeah, the theory based part of it to get people wanting to get into that industry to, to understand it. Most of it, the majority of it is legislation and how to learn about record keeping and the history of zoos and then the ethics of zoos and enclosure design, all these different aspects of it that uh, all come together. Well, that was a really good question there. If you've got a question, like I say, you can send it into our email address, uh, which is the nathistorycovered at gmail.com. Uh, remember, you can, well, you can talk to each other. You can feel free to talk to each other on our on our social media pages. That's yeah, it's really off. cool that people are starting to do that. Yeah. I think it started last week, didn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah. It seems to be really kicking off. So that's, that's good news. Um, you can also, if you are so inclined, uh, you can like, review, comment, subscribe, all those different things uh, that you can do on your um, whatever podcasting service you're listening to us on. Uh, you mm. can l- link us as one of your favorites. Write a review. That always really helps. Um, well, tell other people as if you're uh, talking to us as well. Uh, but that pretty much brings us to the end of uh, this week's episode and leaves me to say a big thank you, Aaron. Thank you. Uh, I enjoyed looking up micro microraptor. It's one of those animals that I thought I knew uh, a lot about, and realised that actually I barely scratched the surface about it. And there's so much more information out there. And I, like I say, I was surprised to learn and that they actually probably were able of a primitive form of powered flight, which is really cool. Well, we can certainly about. come back to them uh, along the lines um, yeah. along uh, at, at some other point. And that uh, just leaves me to say a big thank you to you at home for listening. And we'll see you next time here in the Natural History Cupboard. Bye. Bye. So, Gareth. Yes. You achieved flight. Yes. What did it cost you? Uh, The ability to be classed as a big, scary dinosaur, because I'm not a big, scaly-looking thing that everyone thinks is exactly what they are. (laughs) I'm now just a chicken. Now you're feathered, it somehow makes you less scary. Yeah. Go and meet a cassowary. I mean, we we shouldn't expand upon that really at the end of the podcast, but it's fundamentally wrong. Those feathers make them look far more terrifying. Okay, I'm going.